Well, as you get your Bibles out and you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25, I hope that um, I hope by now that you've been able to notice that there's a pattern that runs through the Bible. There's a pattern that um, runs throughout history that God uses ordinary, obscure, um, unlikely, and even sometimes seemingly forgotten people who are faithful to Him to accomplish incredible things in this lifetime for His glory. And a few weeks ago, we looked at the life of an 85-year-old man named Caleb who stood most of his life in the shadows of another guy by the name of Joshua, and yet God rewarded him because he followed God without, with, with his whole heart for his whole life. Last Sunday, uh, we looked at the book of Acts at a guy's, a guy's life by the name of Stephen who courageously stood up to the pious religious of the day and was willing to go all the way with his faith in Jesus Christ. And you may have been listening to those stories over the last few weeks, and, and maybe you had a thought like, you know, even though these people's names are uncommon, and, and maybe I've never heard of their names before, or maybe I know a little bit about them, they have this level of faith that seems almost un, unachievable to me. Or maybe you still, you look at them and you go, yeah, but they still have this kind of a superhero ability about them that you feel like you could never achieve in your walk with Christ. Or maybe you think right now and you're looking at your past or your present sins and, and you feel like maybe you've completely disqualified yourself from God ever using you in a powerful way to accomplish his purposes. Or, or even right now, you're going through something in your life like, like Rachel, where your light is just, you're overwhelmed or you're consumed and, and your faith is being shaken and you're not even thinking about God doing great things in your life. That's the last thing that's going through your mind. You're just hoping to get through the day. Well, this morning, I want you to know you're in the right place. We're going to look at the story of an unlikely hero in the Bible by the name of Abigail. It's just a simple housewife. Um, most of you probably have never heard of her name before. She's one of those forgotten characters uh, in the Bible who not only heroically saved the life of her husband and her family, but was used by God to save the reputation of Israel's greatest king, King David. Abigail was, was not a superhero of the faith. She was not this prophet. She was not a queen. She was not one of God's judges or anything like that. She was just another great example of the fact that God can take an ordinary, normal, average life and even a life that sometimes may feel forgotten and do the amazing now, who is Abigail? Well, in 1 Samuel 25, verse 1, it says this. Now, Samuel died. Samuel was one of God's prophets, and we find here that he has died. And all of Israel assembled, and they mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went up, went down to the, to the wilderness of Paran. Now, I want to give you a little background in this story. The prophet Samuel, as you know, has anointed David to be the new king of of Israel. God uh, came to Samuel and he said, I want you to go to the house of Jesse, a man who lives in Bethlehem. I want you to look at his sons and I'm going to show you which one to anoint to be the next king. David was chosen to be king and it was a great honor for him. But there was one big, big problem going on in Israel as it relates to this story. Israel already had a king and his name was Saul. And as you can imagine, Saul was extremely jealous of David. 
When we get into this story, David has already killed Goliath. The people of Israel are already singing David's praises. They're ready for David to become the king. Samuel has named David as Saul's successor, but Saul is still on the throne. He's not, he's not been removed yet. He's not even ready to die as far as he knows. David is not his biological son. This is not the normal succession plan to the throne of any kingdom. Saul's not been in on creating the succession plan. But Israel was God's people. Samuel was God's prophet. And God had had enough of Saul's disobedience as the king of his people. So God tells his prophet to name Saul's successor. And David is anointed as the future king of Israel. Well, David becomes a marked man. And Saul loses his mind, and he orders his army to go track down David and to kill him. David was number one on Israel's uh, ten most wanted list. And so as we get into this story, we are seeing David. He is being hunted. He's a wanted man. Saul wants him dead. And so David and his posse, which is about 600 men, go on the run. And as Saul's army is chasing them, they are moving from place to place. They are going from hideout to hideout, from cave to cave, from tent to tent. And they finally move into the desert of Maon, which, if you know anything about deserts in the Middle East, it is right above Egypt. Now, to provide for themselves, David and his men take up the role of policing uh, the area to protect the farmers and ranchers and their flocks from thieves and bandits. They create verbal agreements with uh, the area farmers that they will offer them protection as long as they will pay them and and offer them food and supplies when they need it. So throughout the year, as farmers would bring their sheep in for shearing and they would sell their wool or they would bring their crops in and they would sell their crops, they would then share some of their profits and their food with David and his crew to pay them for the protection. Verse 2, and it says this, And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. He didn't make candy. He lived near Mount Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Now, In other words, Nabal was a descendant of Caleb. But unfortunately, somewhere along the way, Caleb's faith was not passed down to Nabal because we find out from what the Bible says that Nabal was not a good man. He was greedy. He was rude. He was foolish. Matter of fact, the word Nabal in the Hebrew means fool. So if you were thinking, maybe I'll name my son Nabal, not a good choice, okay? But somehow he married well. As we would say in the state of Georgia and down here in the south, he outpunted his coverage. His wife, Abigail, she is bold, she is courageous, and she is humble, and yet she has this tremendous gift of discernment. In other words, she's able to read people. She's able to read into situations. She's able to act accordingly to do what's best at the right moment. Well, David finds out that Nabal is shearing his sheep. Again, Nabal has about 3,000 sheep. So David sends 10 of his men to Nabal's ranch to send a message to Nabal to say, hey, it's time to pay up for my services. We've been protecting you. We've been policing and making sure that no thieves or bandits come to steal and, or harm you. So it's time to now pay up. Now, first he tells his man, men, I want you, when you go to Nabal's house, I want you to offer them 
the proper greeting. And the proper greeting back then went something like this. Peace to you, peace to your house, peace to everything you own. And then he tells Nabal that his flock and his ranch have been protected. David's men have worked hard for him. So could he now please provide payment and provisions to them at this time? Now, in Jewish culture, when it was time to shear the sheep, uh, after that was done, it was time for celebration. So the sheep would be brought in for shearing, and the farmer and his family, after it was all done, they would get together, they would celebrate the prophets, and they would throw a big party. Well, the Bible tells us that David's men deliver the message, and they wait around for Nabal's reply. Now, what about, what's about to happen in the story really pushes David's button. David is about to blow a fuse. Remember, David's being hunted down by Saul. His men are, are and David and his men are, are, are probably very hungry. They're tired. I'm sure David is irritated. He's been living in a tent in the desert. And now he has this farmer by the name of Nabal who's about to mess with him. Now, why does David get so angry? Well, look at verse 10. And Nabal answered David's servant, Who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who have come from I do not know where? Now, Nabal is playing the fool because that would be the wrong answer to give to David's men. When you have a strong leader like David who is tired, he is hungry, he is hunted, being hunted down like a dog, you can expect bad things to happen when you push his button. And Nabal's response lit David's fuse. David is now insulted, he is angry, and he's ready to put a beat down on someone. Verse 12. So David's young men turned away, and they came back and they told David all of this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. What Nabal doesn't know at this moment is that because of his foolishness and his arrogant behavior, he's about to meet David and 400 fighting warriors. The story is about to get violent. Nabal is about to get hurt. Now, this is where a very unlikely hero by the name of Abigail comes into the story. One of Nabal's servants goes to Abigail, and he tells her that Nabal has insulted David. He tells her that David didn't deserve to be treated the way her husband treated him. He tells her that David's men were very kind to them, that, that he treated them with respect, that he did, they did the job that they told them that they were going to do, and now David's upset. He tells her that she better come up with a plan quickly because harm is about to come to her husband and to her family. And here, here's exactly what he says. Because your husband is a worthless man and no one can talk any sense to him, into him. So Abigail has to come up with a quick plan. David's on his way. He's bringing 400 fighting men with him. So what is she going to do? How in the world is this simple housewife going to turn the tide of events here. Now think about this for a moment. Back at this time, women didn't carry a whole lot of authority in society. So who in the world was she to confront David? I mean, how in the world is she going to stop an army of 400 fighting men from destroying her family, 
from destroying her husband. Now, if this were a made-for-television movie, this would be one of those moments where we would all get really irritated because they would cut to a commercial and then we'd have to hear about Tide and Budweiser and all this other stuff. But we're getting to the climax of the story here. This is the moment where everybody kind of gets on the edges of their seat and they sit up straight because this is about to get very interesting. How did Abigail use her discernment to save her husband and her family's life? Well, the Bible says that Abigail, without her husband knowing, prepares a gift for David. She gathers 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five already prepared eat, prepared to eat sheep, a bushel of roasted grain, 100 raisin cakes, and 200 fig cakes. She loads them on a donkey, and she sets out to meet David on the road that is leading to her house. Meanwhile, David, as he's traveling to her house, is having a conversation with the men he's riding with. And he is still furious. I mean, he is stewing. And he tells one of his men this. He says, may God deal severely with me if even one, of, one man of this household, of Nabal's household, is still alive by tomorrow morning. Now, let me make a little observation here. The man after God's own heart has a short fuse, doesn't he? He's got a little bit of an anger issue. Now, if you're Abigail, you could be thinking, this could be a good time to get rid of this sorry slug of a husband that I married. This could be a blessing in disguise. I'm, a, I'm about to be freed up from Nabal. But she wasn't thinking that. Again, women did not have a lot of rights back then. Think about this. If she loses Nabal, if Nabal dies, she's lost protection. If he dies, she lost her means to take care of her family. She may lose her farm. She may lose the ranch. She may lose the property. And back in that time, okay, she might have had to marry Nabal's brother, who could have been worse. We don't know. And if she has any sons, David has promised to kill every male on the property. So here's what she does. She exercises tremendous courage and an amazing amount of discernment, and she courageously confronts David on the road leading to her house. Look at verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servants speak in your ears and hear the words of your servants. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. In other words, he's a fool. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that, I, that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. Verse 29. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. 
And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then, she says, remember your servant. Now, that's quite a speech, isn't it? And some of you may be going, what in the world did she just say? Well, I'm going to try to explain it to you. She basically humbles herself. She calls herself David's servant six times. She calls David her Lord 14 times. And then she intercedes on her husband's behalf without making any excuses for, her, for his foolishness. She is a smart woman. She gets to David and she calms him down and helps him to think rationally by letting him know that she is loyal to him and that her family is loyal to him. And then she says something to David that I think is absolutely brilliant. She tells him this. If you stop right now and if you don't kill my husband or my family, then when you're the king, you're not going to have to live with the guilt of having killed a family for avenging yourself. In other words, she tells him, David, I think it would be in your best interest and in the interest of the future of Israel to not have this kind of story on your record. This is not going to look good for you or the nation of Israel in the future. This is not a good skeleton to have in your closet. If you, if you just, out of anger, out of revenge, go after my husband and after my family and every other man, this is going to be a black eye for you and for the kingdom of Israel. Now, what in the world is David going to do here? Think about this for a moment. He's just been confronted by the wife of a man who's, who has insulted him. And looking on to this whole conversation are 400 macho men, fighting warriors who are just waiting to see how David is going to reply to this situation. How's he going to handle this woman who has the nerve to confront him on the road while he's going to go kill her husband and every other man? Does he throw her aside? Does he, does he march forward to carry out his plan? I mean, that would have obviously been the macho thing to do because remember, this is a, this is a very barbaric time in history. But David's response to Abigail is just one of the reasons why God called him a man after his own heart. He says to Abigail, and I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing by the way, he says, praise God that he has sent you to talk to me at this moment. Thank God that someone has some sense around here. Thank God that you have had the courage to confront me because I could have made a huge error. I could have just committed murder. I could have just killed your entire family. But thank God you have had the courage to stop me at this moment. Now return to your home in peace. I accept your gift. I'm not going to kill your husband. Now what lessons can we learn from this story? Because, I mean, there's lessons jumping all over the pages of this story. Number one. Sometimes God calls you and calls us to courageously fight for our families, especially in the midst of tough, tough situations. This is a woman who probably did not have the greatest marriage in the world. She probably did not have a lot of respect for her husband. He is wealthy, but he's foolish. He's successful, but he's arrogant. She's, she's actually presented with an escape plan out of the marriage. David's going to kill her husband. But David was also going to kill every other male on the ranch and quite possibly in her family. And so she fights for them. 
She courageously fights for her husband and she fights to save her family. Some of you in this room this morning are in a tough marital situation right now. Your marriage is on the brink of disaster. It is time for you to fight for your marriage. Some of you, maybe your family is falling apart. It is coming apart at the seams. It's time for you to get some courage to lean into God and to fight for your family. God has given you all of the weapons that you need in your relationship with Jesus Christ. He has given you prayer. He has given you the truth of God's word. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He has given you your identity in Christ. He has given you your belief and your faith in God's power. The word of God says that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And for some of you ladies in here, for some of you men in here who are losing your family, you're losing your marriage it is time to lean into Jesus and to fight for your family and to fight for your marriage some of you as parents are dealing with a child that's being swept into the world some of you as grandparents are dealing with a grandson or a granddaughter who is being swept into the world fight for them Stand your ground, get a plan, get a prayer covering, claim God's promises, and pray like your child's life depends on it, and fight for your child. Listen, I have, when, when it comes to desperate times, desperate times call for desperate measures, and desperate measures call for desperate prayers. And when I read God's word, I see that God answers desperate prayers. And with God's strength, Abigail fought for her family. The second thing we learn is a calm spirit and humility are two of the most effective ways to handle a difficult situation. Here's a a word that Peter writes in 1 Peter 3 to ladies. He says, In the same way you wives must accept the authority of your husband, then even if some refuse to obey God's good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. Guys, I just saved you a lot of money right there. You should clothe yourself instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. Listen, ladies, it's so easy when you see the words gentle and quiet spirit to all of a sudden think meek and mousy. But I want to tell you something. Abigail, there was nothing about her that was meek and mousy. She was brave. She was courageous. She had a tremendous amount of faith. She was not brash, but she was a butt kicker. She pulled her servants together. She put her resources together. She put together a feast. She took her life into her own hands, and she stopped her family from being slaughtered. You look at this story and you go, what gave her the ability to have a gentle, quiet spirit in the face of disaster? What was it that allowed her to do that? It was that she trusted God to make things work out. She didn't freak out. She didn't do something irrational. She didn't go after Nabal and attack him for being a complete fool. She waited for the right moment, and she used her God-given gift of discernment to navigate through a very tricky situation. What's discernment? Discernment is the ability to read people and situations and to act according to what's best. You see, sometimes here's what we do when, when, when crazy things go on around us, don't we? Instead of, and I'm talking to everybody now, right? Not just the ladies. Sometimes when things go off the rail in our lives, here's what we do. Instead of quieting our spirit before the Lord, Instead of spending some time in his presence before we do anything and just seeking his direction and trying to uh, allowing him to calm our spirit, sometimes what do we do? We get on board the crazy train. 
and we pick up the phone and we blast somebody or we write an email and without really thinking it through, we fire it off to somebody or we get on Facebook and we start ranting and raving and we make ourselves look like a fool and we damage our witness for Christ. And here's this woman who's about to lose her whole world and what does she do? She stays calm, she quiets her spirit, she humbles herself, and she obviously allows the Holy Spirit to lead her, and God used all of it to, to turn David's heart. And I know some of you in here may be thinking, man, I wish I could do that. I wish when things go off the rail for me that I could be calm and humble. Listen, I want to tell you something. The more time that you spend in the presence of Jesus, the more you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. The more time that you spend in the presence of Jesus, the more you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does the filling of the Holy Spirit look like? When you go to Galatians 5, you see words like peace and joy and gentleness and love and kindness. Number three, it's in life's toughest situations that we see God do some of his best work. Listen, we know that God is always at work around us. But it's when we go through our toughest moments and our most difficult situations that oftentimes we actually get to see God do some of his best work. Because it's in those moments, sometimes when we can't see him, when we're struggling, when we've just been kicked in the gut, that he's walking with us, that he's carrying us, that he's guiding us, that he's leading us, that he's saving us from trouble, that oftentimes he's defending us, that he's doing the miraculous, that he's giving us discernment when we need it the most. I don't know if you know much about David's full life, But not only was David at this moment running from Saul, but later on in his life, he commits adultery. He murders the woman's husband. He loses a baby. One of his sons rapes his daughter. Another son has that son murdered. That same son tries to kill David, puts him on the run again. And I want you to listen to the words of David in many of the, uh, that he writes throughout the Psalms, and in one, two places in particular, Psalm 138, 7, he says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, he says, God, you preserve my life, you stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. Psalm 37, 39, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord, he is their stronghold in the time, in the time of trouble. As I think back over my life, you know what, it has been the valleys and the deserts where God has taken his best work, and he has made it play out in my life. Why is that? It's because I'm the most desperate for him during those moments. And I found that it's when I am most desperate for him that he does his best work, that he shows up, that he begins to truly answer prayer. God was doing a great work in Abigail's life because she was desperate for him. The fourth thing. You don't need to have a prestigious title to play a significant role in life or in ministry. You know, sometimes we think, you know, if I can work my way up the chain or if I can grab this title or have this kind of position or or work in a certain place, then I'll I'll achieve significance. Abigail was a housewife. She wasn't a queen. She wasn't a CEO. She wasn't running a ministry. She, she, She served God as a housewife. And God used a very unlikely woman not only to save her family, but to keep David from scarring his image. 
And it is quite possible that if Abigail would not have done what she did, David would have done severe damage not only to his future role as king of Israel, but quite possibly to the nation of Israel itself. Listen, you don't need a prestigious title or in, this, in, in life or even in this church to play a significant role. God can take ordinary people from ordinary places and use them to do the extraordinary. And then finally... When you lean deeply into your relationship with the Lord, you will find that he is all that you need. Seven times in Abigail's plea to David, she acknowledges the Lord. She acknowledges Jesus. She even makes reference in verse 30 to the fact that she knows that David has found favor in God's eyes and, this is going, and he, that he's going to be the king over all of Israel. Now, living way, way away from Jerusalem, how would she ever know that? Because this was a woman that walked with God. Her faith was in the Lord. She had an uncommon courage. And, and she, she was able to face David and her, and her four, his 400 fighting men because she knew that she was complete in her relationship with Christ. When her family and her life were in danger, she leaned into Jesus because she knew that he would be enough. She knew she was enough because she knew that Jesus was enough. What a great lesson for all of us. When you realize that Jesus is enough, and that your identity is in him, that nothing can harm you, nothing can come against you when your identity is in him, what will you do during desperate times? Hopefully you'll do what Abigail did. You'll lean into him. And what you'll find is he's more than enough. He's all that you need. Now how does this story end? Abigail goes home, and she get, when she gets there, she finds that Nabal has thrown a party. He's celebrating. In his mind, he's just told David where to jump off the train. He has no clue that David was about to derail his train. Plus, the Bible says that he's hammered drunk. And so discerning Abigail decides to wait until the next morning when he's sober to tell him what had just happened. And so the next morning, she gets up. And she fills him up, she fills him in on all that had taken place the day before. Now, what does Nabal do? Well, the Bible says that he has a stroke. He gets so frightened, the Bible says, that his heart actually stops and he freezes like a stone. He goes into a 10 day bout with paralysis and then he finally dies. David hears about Nabal's death. He thanks God for paying back Nabal for insulting him. And then he sends this word to Abigail Hey, since your husband is dead, would you marry me? Isn't this a cool story? And that's exactly what they do. They get married. David had a few wives, by the way. You might be facing a difficult situation right now. Your back is up against the wall. For some of you, maybe your marriage is falling apart. Your family's falling apart. It is time for you to grab a hold of everything that you have in Christ. Prayer, the Holy Spirit, God's word, God's promises, your identity in Jesus, and fight for your marriage. Fight for your kids. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Desperate measures sometimes call for desperate prayers. God answers desperate prayers. When you know who you are in Christ, 
you realize that you are more than enough. Why? Because you realize he is all you, he's all, he's enough. Jesus is enough. He's all you need. This is a room full of common, ordinary people that God wants to do extraordinary things through. But I want you to know this. This is not a story about Abigail. It's a story about God. It's a story about Jesus. It's a story about the Holy Spirit at work in the life of a common woman. Let's not lose that, okay? Because God can do the very same thing through your life. He's obviously not going to call you to confront a king and fight for the life of your family against 400 fighting men. Your scenario, your story is very different. I have no idea. I may not even know what it looks like. But the courage, the discernment, the faith comes from God. The ability to lean in during moments of desperate times comes from your relationship with Jesus, knowing that he's more than enough. And you have the Holy Spirit on your side to give you the peace and the calmness and the discernment when you need it most. And that's what we need to grab from this story this morning. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for this story. We don't celebrate the life of Abigail this morning. We celebrate the power of God. We celebrate the presence of Jesus in this woman's life. We celebrate the presence of the Holy Spirit working in her life at the right moment. And we acknowledge that the story is all about you. And we give you all the praise and the glory. And for those who are here today who maybe needed this story in a desperate way, I pray that they'll lean into, Lord, the truth of the story and may they find their strength in you. May they find that in Jesus they are more than enough because Jesus is enough. And may they find the strong presence of the Holy Spirit waiting to fill them. If you're here today, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to be your personal Savior. I I want you to pray with me right now. Father, at this very moment, I with a humble heart, come before you. And I ask you to be my Lord and Savior. I ask forgiveness of my sins. Lord, what you have done for me on the cross by sending your son Jesus was more than enough. I could never pay for my sins. I could never work to pay for my sins. It's only by faith that I receive this gift of grace that you have given me. And I put everything I have into that this morning. And I acknowledge that Jesus is my Savior.